Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dialogue Out Loud series. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Today, we're excited to have with us Christina Rossetti, an assistant professor of humanities at Utah Tech University, and among her many other accolades, the nonfiction book review editor at Dialogue. In her fascinating article, Fast from That Which Is Not Perfect, Food, Abstinence, and Fasting Cures in the Kingdom of God, Christina examines extreme fasting as a healing practice in the context of Mormon fundamentalist groups and discovers some fascinating insights into how revelation, gender, health, and food intersect. A note to our listeners that this episode contains discussion of disordered eating and bodily harm. Christina, welcome. It's so nice to talk to you about your research. Thanks so much for having me. So your article focuses on various members of the Kingston family, including a woman named Orlean. We'll talk more about her. But can you tell us a little bit about the Kingstons, the time period that we're talking about, how they fit into the broader Mormon fundamentalist movement? Let's sort of set the stage for us a little bit. Yeah, so the Kingston community, it, there's several names that people might be familiar with from them. They're kind of colloquially called the Kingstons. Um, but their formal name is either the Davis County Cooperative Society or the Latter-day Church of Christ. Uh, and they're a community that, like many people, um, their earliest leaders were excommunicated from the LDS Church in the early 1930s for the practice of polygamy. Um, the first person who was disciplined by the church was a man named Charles W. Kingston. He's kind of the patriarch of the family. And he was excommunicated and like so many people didn't care at all about his excommunication. Um, and this was a time I know now when we talk about excommunication and so many people justifiably talk about excommunication as an act of spiritual violence. They talk about it as being disconnected from their religious community. But in the 1920s and 1930s, being excommunicated from the LDS church was just something that happened to a lot of people, especially for polygamy. And it didn't matter because it didn't stop people from being Mormon. And he was one of many that this happened to, and he kind of starts to think about joining another group at the time, the Council of Friends, which is the early iteration of a solidified fundamentalist faith expression, had already started meeting. In 1922, fundamentalists really kind of start to meet together. And he goes down and kind of talks to them and sees maybe if his family can join with them. And we're the historical record is actually pretty unclear as to why that doesn't happen. But soon after that doesn't work out, his son, Eldon, has revelation. And the revelation, tale as old as time, tells him, you're the prophet now. Uh, and so he starts to solidify a group mostly based on his family. And slowly people start to join. And that's the earliest expression of the Kingston group. Um, people might be interested to know that, of course, they're polygamists, um, but in its early years, they were really focused on consecration. So this was a group that everyone's poor. Um, it's, you know, the depression has hit everyone, and they were really interested in bringing together like-minded people to live communitarianism. So that's its kind of earliest existence. So they're doing sort of, you know, cooperative living, communal living, uh, uh, communitarian pro prog programs. They're practicing plural marriage. Uh, they are formally excommunicated from the church and they're starting a kind of their kind of their, their own thing. 
So how does Orlean, one of the main characters that you talk about, how does she fit into this broader network? So Orlean is the daughter of Charles W. Kingston. Her brother is Eldon, the man who starts to receive revelations and become a prophet. Um, and she was similarly excommunicated for the practice of plural marriage. Uh, she talks in her diaries about the experience of it. And again, she's so casual about it. Um, she notes that she didn't get to speak in her disciplinary hearing, which was fairly common for women in the in that period of time. Um, but she's excommunicated for her belief, her practice, and her teaching of polygamy. That's kind of, it's specific that she's an apostate, and she's an apostate because she practices and teaches plural marriage. Um, her husband is becomes a prompter of the Kingston community as well, and as well as her sister wife. Um, but she is excommunicated, and the night she's excommunicated, one of the most interesting things about her is she's excommunicated from the church, doesn't really care, and then goes home, and she has a vision of Joseph Smith. He's like standing at the end of her bed, and she sees them all get in a boat, and he guides them on the other and other side of this river. And she imagines that Joseph Smith is still going to lead her family. She's still deeply Mormon, and she believes that from that, that her family is going to be the most true expression of the church. Um, and that begins a long life not long life, but a long trajectory of visions and revelations and really being a spiritual leader of this community. If my memory is correct, she's in her early 20s or so, about the time of her ex excommunication. Is that right? Yes. She's early 20s and she dies very young. She dies in her 40s. So it is a short kind of gap. Um, and the, the reason for her death is connected, of course, to the subject of this article. Um, so it's a small amount of time, meaning her, her diaries were pretty short that I read through. Um, but yeah, she remains very Mormon. So you've mentioned her diaries a few times. Uh, tell us how you came into contact with these diaries and what other kind of research you you did. We'll get into the sub substance of, of this, but this was a really kind of really interesting aspect of all of this too, how you kind of found out about her and these early days of the uh, of the Davis Cooperative Society. Yeah, so I, a friend of mine sent me her diaries, scan a scanned copy of them. Um, it's a way that I, I mean, fundamentalist Mormons, um, a lot of the early fundamentalist leaders' diaries are held in the church history library. Unfortunately, most of them are closed to research um, because of the policy of if you're excommunicated, things kind of get more difficult to see. Um, fundamentalists realized this pretty early that if their diaries if their family's diaries were sent to the church history library they'd kind of be gone from the family and so there became a really fast trend of photocopying everything so if you want copies of a fundamentalist leader's diaries they're somewhere in the world um so i was interested in i was i had written an article for dialogue about women that were about fundamentalist women and a friend of mine sent me orlean's diaries and I had never heard of her. I had, of course, heard of the Kingston community. I'd never heard of her, though. And it became, I wasn't originally going to write about health because I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know that she fasted. I didn't know anything. But I thought it would be interesting to tell a history of fundamentalism through the eyes of a woman because we don't see that at all um, for the most part. And at the same time, a friend of mine who had left the Davis County Cooperative Society had, because this was during COVID, um, he had messaged a group of friends 
to let me know that some people had recently passed away from this fasting practice that they do and or have done. Um, and I started asking questions about that. And he let me know about family members who had been really sick from it or who had died from it, um, people he knew who had died from this practice. And at the same time, I start reading Marlene's diaries and there it is. Um, and I'm like, well, this is a practice and a belief in fundamentalism that we should probably be talking about. In fact, I, as far as I'm aware, this is the first article to discuss anything like this, not only uh, the sort of insider's perspective of the uh, of a woman's perspective, as you said, of early uh, or early Mormon fundamentalism, but also the kind of extreme fasting practices that many of these within this particular community engage in. So tell us a little bit about what those looked like. What was Orlean? She was receiving revelations, as you mentioned. What are these revelations? What are these practices that she's engaged in? Yeah, I mean, Orlean, if you look at her diaries, probably every day she documents what she's eating. She documents what kind of insight into food. Um, and she documents her visions of seeing God, of seeing Jesus Christ, of seeing kind of how the restoration is unfolding, of seeing Joseph Smith. Um, and she begins to start calling what she's doing a more perfect word of wisdom, which for every, most people listening, <laughs> the word of wisdom is the Mormon dietary code. Um, and so a woman expanding on that, for what most people would imagine, someone expanding on the word of wisdom, that is a prophetic role. Like most Latter-day Saints aren't just going to like revise the word of wisdom and have it be like accepted by Mormonism. Um, and so she begins to slowly kind of unpack what the dietary code for the kingdom of God, which is what she called Davis County Cooperative Society, what it should be. Um, she was really, a couple things came together. She was very concerned with food combining. Uh, food combining is things like you can't mix fruit and starch. You can't um, eat any food. You can't eat any one food until you are full. She was really interested in mono meals. You couldn't mix starch and protein. Um, just a range of, like there was something like you can't have bread and potatoes together. You can't eat winter carrots and potatoes. Rice and potatoes don't go together. A lot of things don't go together. Um, but she also started to really focus on food in their natural state. And so when we think about foods that are, quote, natural, which is so interesting that, you know, these ideas of don't eat toxins, only eat natural food. That's still something we do and talk about. But that meant for her, you can't eat processed food, which a lot of people are probably familiar with that diet trend too of not eating processed food. So she wouldn't, because of that, she wouldn't eat bread. She wouldn't eat um, milk. She wouldn't eat, she didn't want people to eat salt, no honey. Um, you can imagine how bland food would be in this situation. Um, and then slowly over time, she started eating less and less. She would weigh her food, only eat a certain number of ounces of food a day. Um, she became very thin. Um, she became very frail. People started to notice it created fights in the community. Um, and then toward the end of her life, she has an insight into Moses and Jesus Christ, where she thinks that I mean, I don't know how she gets to 42 days because she she argues that Jesus fasted for 42 days in the desert. Most people say it's 40. And so she begins to kind of devise what a 42-day fast would be. In her life, um, what that ended up looking like is one week dry, so no food or water, 
one week with just water, and then the remainder of the 42 days just eating, just drinking Greek juice. So a lot of kind of obsession around food, around, as you said, what kinds of foods you can eat, what kinds of things you can't eat, what goes together, what doesn't go together. And then uh, uh, sort of the most extreme version of this is the 42-day fast. Uh, it has some other names, too. I think you call it the, the grape diet. Or What are some of the other ways in which people might uh, be familiar with versions of this? Yeah, I, I was interested in, I called it the grape diet because at the same time that Orlina is doing this, a really trendy diet book was similarly circulating, which I wasn't familiar with, um, called The Grape Cure. Um, and The Grape Cure is exactly what Orlean was doing. It was one week with no food water, one week with just water, and then just grape juice. Um, and of course, it's like, it's not like Welch's. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't, Welch's isn't going to cut the grape cure diet. Um, it has to be regular grapes. Um, she also calls it striving. Um, whenever Orlean talks about striving, she's not talking about like persevering. She's talking about fasting um, and fasting in this way. Um, one of the really interesting things, um, as a, just in writing this article, I, I wrote 42 dang fast. And the editor, one of the copy editors, I think like couldn't believe that that's what it was <laughs> and edited it to say 42 day fast and was like, is this what you mean? And I was like, no, it's not what I mean. <laughs> Days of fasting. Um, diet was really, um, a big deal for her. Ultimately, um, a lot of people argue that that is how she died, not from the fast necessarily, but many people who knew her or at least were or were related to her or were familiar with her life or her children um, would say that she passed from breaking the fast incorrectly, which for the people who don't know, um, as dangerous as a fast of that extent is coming out of it. So, Tell us a little bit about why, now she's not the only one, we can maybe get to this too, other people in the community begin to follow her her teachings on these things, but why was she making these arguments uh, and why was she practicing this uh, approach to food here? What was the sort of spiritual benefit that she saw here? So she, her, she believed, like many people throughout history, that the body and the soul are connected. Um, and I mean, again, that's not unique. I mean, medieval theologians have been saying forever that we're hylomorphic, that our body and souls are unities. And so she really saw that in, a, in an extreme way, that to discipline the body was to discipline the soul, and that she saw that you could have a spiritually strong being from a weakened body, that if your body is weak, your spirit has to be strong. Um, and so fasting is kind of an easy way of doing this. It's a way, and none of these arguments are new. Uh, mystics and visionaries and religious from many traditions have said that exact same thing. And so striving became a way of drawing close to God. And she would talk about how she, w she would constantly say, and the Lord was very close to me, um, to close out diary entries of really intense days, of really difficult um, periods of fasting. Uh, one of the interesting accounts of her fast is she had a she got an argument with her brother. Her brother becomes the prophet and or the religious, I don't think he was called that yet, but becomes the religious leader of the community. And he continually tells her to stop it. 
Uh, he sees that this is bad for her. He sees that things aren't going well. And he sees that she's influencing other women, but he also sees that it's causing fights with her sister wife. Because how do you raise children like this? Do you raise them eating normal amounts of food? Do you raise them doing this? Um, and so he was trying to get her to stop. And she didn't listen to him, which is also interesting to just not fundamentally not listen to your religious leader because God's telling you something else. And she has a vision of the, the 4th of July parade where um, she's told not to participate. She doesn't participate. And she and she wakes up and she says that participating is fine for some people, but I'm, dif- but I'm different. And she equates this to the consumption of milk, that her brother told her you need to drink this extra milk. And she wakes up from this dream and she's like, well, clearly milk is fine, but I'm not like the others. Uh, and so she sees it as a way of spiritually differentiating herself, that she is special. She's she's different. Um, and she knows that. Like She knows that she's religiously different. And so that's another kind of thing that she gets out of this. Um, a lot of this does, though, start when she miscarries. She has a miscarriage early and she becomes convinced that it's because of her body, that she's not conceiving, that she's not health, spiritually healthy, that she's not physically healthy. And if she gets spiritually healthy, she'll become physically healthy. Um, and she has a dream that if she does this, a child will come. That never happens. Um, she does have significant miscarriages throughout her life. Um, the fasting likely contributing to that. But there was it's kind of a, a range of reasons came together and really reinforced this belief about her body and about God. So you mentioned that it's used in, in some respects for her as a cure, and this is perhaps one of the reasons that other people begin to imitate uh, uh, her, her teaching. So you've you've already alluded that her her husband and her you know her brothers are are not really fans of these practices, and yet they sort of catch on to and continue to live on to this day. So tell us a little bit in in brief arc here why these became controversial and why some people uh, continue to be attracted to these teachings. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a practice that still happens today. Uh, Like I mentioned, a friend of my, I first learned about it because a friend messaged a group chat I was in and was like, someone just died from this. Um, And then over time, learning about people who had been diagnosed with cancer, who instead of seeing a doctor decided to do the 42-day fast. Um, there was some, I feel bad calling it pseudoscience, but, you know, um, of, there, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people who do, who for health, quote unquote, health reasons, in times of grave illness, will just consume water. And the idea behind it is that, and I, I want to be clear, this is not how bodies work. Sorry. Um if your body isn't busy digesting food, it'll allocate that energy elsewhere to like healing something. So if you have cancer, if you don't eat, the energy you would be using to digest food will be used to treat the cancer. Uh, and so some of that is part of this, that if that that food or that energy can be used to treat illness, but also that you'll be closer to God. And so people have done this to treat leukemia, most recently during COVID. Um, the Davis County Cooperative Society lost um, a significant leader of their community to COVID, um, and one of their other their leader um, got COVID, and so that became this became a crisis um, moment. And so the forty two day fast was used at that point to try to alleviate the community 
Um, and of course, it ended up harming many people. So these are some, uh, you know, really intense uh, uh, kind of alternative medical theories. They have secular uh, versions of these in terms of cleansing and all, all kinds of other, you know, non-toxin diets. And they're they're a part of a larger trend of uh, 20th century and probably much earlier. Uh, you, you've connected Orlean to, you know, uh, medieval mystics who were engaged in these kinds of extreme uh, holy fasting as well. But what do you think are some of the broader lessons that you draw out from this story uh, that you think scholars or other people who are kind of looking on, uh, trying to understand these practices might uh, might take from this episode? Um, well, there was two things that really stuck out to me with Orlean. Um, the first kind of most obvious is that there's a woman in fundamentalism who is doing her religion very differently than not only the rest of the community, but also the her leaders and fully dissenting. They're they're telling her, stop it. And she's saying, no, uh, I'm going to do it the way that my, that my visions and revelations happen. And that's, I mean, I don't want to in any way pretend that Orlean had some kind of institutional power or had power generally. She didn't. Um, but that she was finding a way for herself to be part of this tradition um, that was very hard for, it was, it's in, I mean, today, I don't, again, don't want to discount the abuse in this community because um, it's real and the victims have come forward. Many have come forward about this community. Uh, it was hard for Orlean to be this religion, but she found a way to just make it work. And I think that's an interesting thing to consider how women do that. Um, the other thing about Orlean is it's really easy to write her off as crazy. <laughs> and it's really easy to write her off as just an anorexic or someone who's just sick. Um, and what we forget is that in the time period she lived, fasting was actually most associated with men and no one ever pathologized men for fasting. Um, in the 1920s and thirties, this was a bodybuilding thing. This was like a bodily discipline. Like you were a stronger, better man if you were able to do this. Um, but Orlean's just an anorexic in the historic, would be considered that in the historical record. Um, and so I think the way we think about her is... I think the way we think about women's bodies and illness is and mental illness is really different and worth considering. Um, and I connected her to Catherine of Siena, like you mentioned. Um, I, Catherine of Siena is someone who means a lot to me. She's my patron, <laughs> fun fact. Um, and I love Catherine of Siena. Like she, but she also, like she only, like the end of her life, she only consumed the Eucharist. That's all she ate uh, and pus. But fun fact. Um, and I don't think of her as crazy, but why would I, and why, but why I would be inclined to think Orlean has something wrong with her, but I would never think that of Catherine. Um, and so the way that historical distance makes Catherine normal, but Orlean not, and that, you know, Catherine is mine. She's part of my tradition, but Orlean's not. And how I, how we kind of imagine women from the past versus now, I think those are things worth considering. This has been so fascinating, Christina. So thank you so much for joining us today to talk about uh, this really intense uh, episode in Mormon women's history and fundamentalism and uh, uh, thinking about these broader issues in the study of religion as well. We hope that our listeners have enjoyed the conversation and have learned something about food abstinence that one might encounter in religion. And if you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to check out Christina Rossetti's article, Fasting from That Which Is Not Perfect, 
food abstinence and fasting cures in the kingdom of God in the summer 2023 issue of Dialogue and to explore other resources on this topic there as well. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And don't forget to leave us a review or get in touch with any comments or questions. We hope that you'll tune in for future episodes of our podcast. Please subscribe and rate the show and be sure to check out the whole range of shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. Hello, this is Andrew Hall, co-host of the Dialogue Book Report. Each episode, Christina Rossetti and I talked to brilliant minds on the world of Mormon publishing. In recent episodes, we sat down with Christine Hagland and Terrell Givens to discuss the life and legacy of Eugene England. In upcoming episodes, we will be talking to novelist and 19th century women's rhetoric scholar Rosalind Eves about her recent young adult novel, Beyond the Map Stars, and the literature and religion scholar Charles Inoue about his memoir, Zion Earth, Zen Sky, and the Asian American experience within Mormonism. Subscribe to the show wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And check out our past episodes by going to dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network.